1776, July 4th, the peoples of the then British colonies of America stepped out from under the authority of the British monarchy. And by their own admission, they did so because they were convinced that the blessings of liberty were worth the cost not only to obtain, but also to maintain in their lives. Uh, many of you are perhaps familiar with the quote from John Philpot Curran from a speech from his in 1790, where he is quoted as saying, the condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance. Now, this man was not an American politician. He was an Irish politician, speaking well after the revolution had ended, and yet he spoke of a concept which, as we see in our day, is absolutely and eminently true. Liberty is not the natural state of man, and, and, and we need to understand this. Now, I've already framed this within the context of, uh, of political liberties, and we're not going to talk about that a whole lot today, but it, it works as a bridge, and it's, it, it's important, but, but we need to understand this, that whether we're talking politically, culturally, civilly, or whether we're talking spiritually, liberty is not the natural state of man. A lot of our culture has this backwards today. They believe that man is naturally uh, uh, born to reach for and to desire liberty. And in a sense, that's true. But in a sense, that's also very, very not true. Oppression and tyranny is man's natural state. Liberty is something unique that happens from time to time. To this end, when liberty is found... It not only incurs a cost to obtain because it is running against the very nature of human, of humanity itself. Liberty is not only difficult to obtain and costly to obtain, but it is costly to maintain. And this idea, so dramatically reflected in the nature of the founding of the United States of America in relation to politics and society, is founded upon, in fact, biblical teachings, as most of our founding is. And the biblical teachings taught this fact as it related to spiritual liberty. Paul and Jesus spoke of these things as it related to spiritual liberty, and then what our founders did, of course, standing on the shoulders of many philosophers who had come before them, was take these spiritual concepts, first introduced by theologians, then extended by philosophers, then brought into politics, and did exactly that. They took theological concepts as it related to liberty that the Bible teaches with respect to the spirit of man and his relationship to God and his word, and then they turned those into a philosophy that became a political ideology. What that means is that we can reverse engineer this. Well, we don't even have to because we have the original text. But we can take what is troubling us all as it relates to our liberties today in a political sense, as we see a uh, large uh, part of our, not just United States culture, but of Western culture as a whole, completely falter and fail as it relates to their orientation and understanding to the nature of liberty. And we can back that up to the source material, read what the Word of God says, learn some things about politics and culture as it relates to liberty, but all the more so say, and this is the significantly more important question, I am wrestling with these things as it relates to my culture that is around me and liberty in the political and in the cultural sense. 
how am I doing spiritually? If liberty, is, if, if liberty incurs a cost to obtain, and if it incurs a cost to maintain in the realm of politics, in the realm of culture, is it the same in the realm of, of the spiritual? And that's what we're going to ask today. The narrow way of living in the spiritual liberty which Christ has purchased for us on the cross. And the essence of this liberty, which we've talked about in any number of times before, is rooted in the distinction between the cold, objective justice that God had enshrined in the law, that being a reflection of his holiness and his righteousness, and the liberty that is rooted in grace that was introduced through Jesus Christ, where Christ has fulfilled the law and the call upon our lives is not directed unto legal conformity to a specific set of delineated actions complete with the guilt and the fear and, and, and all of those things that come in the face of inevitable failure because we are sinful, engendering in a, uh, excuse me, ending in a state whereby my conscience is crippled under the weight of my own incapacity to live up to God's expectations and standards. And this is contrasted with the call upon our lives as born-again believers to be directed unto the person and work of Jesus Christ, complete with a deliverance of my conscience from guilt and from fear, a shift in my motivation away from moral conformity and toward loving obedience ending in a state whereby my conscience is freed from the weight of my own incapacity because Jesus has already accomplished the work. This became the template for the frustrations and then the concerns and then the philosophies and all of those things that had worked themselves into the climate of the day by the time that 1776 came around. This conflict between this cold, hard, top-down law that enforced without any capacity for anyone to have any wiggle room where you were born into a system, you lived in that system, that system did not work for you, that system worked whether you were there or not, and that system was untouchable. And then what the founders envisioned, which was based not upon that cold, hard system per se, it was still going to be a system of laws, but it was based upon a recognition of a concept called grace and the liberty that is found in grace, where a person is able to govern himself because his motivations are not, are not intrinsically top-down fear-based motivations, but internally based love motivations. Now, the nature of the believer's freedom in relationship to the law is not my focus today. We've focused on it quite a bit in our Hebrew series, which we just finished last week. In the summer of 2019, I preached a six-part series on the law, which if you're interested more about the, the nature of the relationship between the believer and the law, I encourage you to go back and listen to that series. It was a little while ago now, um, but it was very comprehensive, and I think it did a good job. But let me just read a couple of scriptures to set the context for this change that happened and when this change happened, that context is going to help us understand what it is that we're getting at as we talk about the nature of liberty, understanding the challenges of spiritual liberty. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, 
that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from, uh, from the law, excuse me, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So when we are spiritually, when we were spiritually buried with Christ, we are then raised to walk in newness of life. We are then judicially delivered from the power and the demands, not just of sin, but of the law of God as related to our standing before God. And we are ushered instead into a fundamentally different relationship with God, whereby we are delivered from the weight and the guilt and the demands of the law. Not that we are free from all of the from from um, all compulsion or restraint, but that we might instead serve in a different manner, in a newness of spirit, rather than the oldness of the letter. And as we've said before, this does not mean that the law is or was bad or wrong, or sinful, or evil by any means. Much to the contrary, Paul continues. And he says in verses 7 and 8, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. So the law is not sin. In fact, the law is the very thing that tells me what sin is. The law is the thing that takes my conscience and enlivens my conscience and allows me to understand the separation or the differences between uh, the way I'm living and the way God expects me to live or the way that God demands, really, that I live. The law is the merging of human principles with divine character so that the law shows me how incapable I am of pleasing God. And that's what Galatians tells us, that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 1 tells us, that the law is there in order to help us understand our need for Christ. But the law was in and of itself insufficient because it tells me there's a problem, but it gives me no solution. The law is not in itself a solution-oriented idea. It says there's a problem, you have a problem, and that problem will, will be punished. This is one of the, the, the great debates that we have in our criminal justice system today, right? The, the, the debate between a criminal justice system being punitive or being restorative. And unfortunately, we find ourselves in a scenario today where people are convinced that the criminal justice system is supposed to be Rehabilitative or restorative. It's supposed to rehabilitate. That is not what a law is supposed to do. A law and its consequences cannot inherently rehabilitate. You don't send somebody to a house with a bunch of other bad people to rehabilitate them. That's not how rehabilitation works. It's punitive. It's intended to punish people, right? And that is what the law does, and that is what God's law did. It was Punitive. It had a standard and it said you live up to that standard. And if you don't live up to that standard, there's going to be problems for you between you and God because that standard is a law. It is punitive. Thus, the law was not there to bring about a solution. It was there to show a problem. It is incapable of bringing about a solution. And in my heart, it's incapable because I'm incapable of keeping the law. So Paul's conclusion came then in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now in this, we see a fundamental contrast. The law functioned to reflect God's character, but ended only in condemnation. Jesus came to deliver us from that condemnation by fulfilling the legal standard for us in his death. Not to free us to do whatever we wanted, but to direct us into different motivations. Not of guilt and of shame and of condemnation, but of love and devotion. To deliver us from the chains of the law of sin and death and to free us to walk after the Spirit. And in the book of Galatians, Paul calls this relationship, this state of living in Christ, he calls that liberty. So that we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That yoke of bondage there is, is uh, you can say by proxy it is sin, but it is actually beyond sin. It is the law that, 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 that stands over us and that condemns us as we sin. Do not get entangled again in these compulsions, Paul said. Touch not, taste not, handle not, as Colossians would describe it. Stand in the liberty that Christ has purchased with his blood. The liberty purchased by Christ, realized in Christ, frees us to serve the Lord outside of the weight and the condemnation of our sin because it has been paid for. And so instead of us serving under this weight of this guilt or this shame, it allows us instead to serve by love and in love, both unto God and toward one another. And this is where we're transitioning as we focus in our message, as we're, we're getting more and more focused today. Paul would go on to say something very important in Galatians 5, verse 13. This is what we're getting to. In Galatians 5, verse 1, Paul says, Stand fast in your liberty. Galatians 5, 13, he says this, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Notice here that as Paul presents the concept of spiritual liberty, freedom from the harsh and impossible demands of the oldness of the letter into the joy and the newness of the spirit, you know, those harsh demands of the oldness of the letter, while no man could live up to them in his heart, there is a measure of capacity to live up to them in your body, isn't there? We saw that in the days of the Pharisees, in the days of those very staunch Jewish uh, men. They, they were doing a fairly good job of living up to the standard of the law externally. But the problem was inside, they were, they were dead, right? They were full of dead men's bones. And so externally, they had lived up to some things in order to avoid the civil punitive idea, but they could not live up to them in order to avoid the spiritual punishment. Those impossible demands of this oldness of the letter were, would rest over them still as it related to them spiritually. And so Jesus brought about a spiritual liberty whereby we could live in the newness of the spirit. This liberty by no means represented, however, a freedom from responsibility. And that's what Galatians 5.13 tells us. 
It is not as if my liberty in Christ means I can pursue the whims and desires of my own deceitful heart or as if my liberty has delivered me from the expectations of practical righteousness. No one can read the New Testament and come away with that if they're being honest with with the text. Rather, liberty actually adds to my responsibility. It does not detract from it. Liberty adds a layer of responsibility and accountability. And it is always so, whether we're talking about spiritual liberty or whether we're talking about liberty in the political and cultural sense. Liberty is not a reduction of responsibility and accountability. It is an addition of responsibility and accountability. So that whereas under a harsh legal standard, my life would be consumed with the perpetual need to justify myself before God and men. Under liberty, my life is freed from that need, but unto an intended end. Not freed simply so that I can do whatever I want in the whims of my own heart, but rather freed in order that I may turn my eyes off of myself turn my eyes off of having to constantly live up to this demand and instead turn my eyes to others. I can turn my attention away from my own guilt and shame and instead I can love others unencumbered. And this is the responsibility of liberty. Liberty is not there to free me to simply do what I want. It is there to free me from myself so that I can serve others. In this light, liberty does not actually represent an easier path. Much to the contrary, liberty represents a more difficult path, but a more difficult path that has such superior results that it's absolutely worth it. And that's the concept of liberty. In any context, liberty is not the easier path. Liberty is not the less accountable path. Liberty is not the selfish path. Liberty is a more difficult path. But it's a difficult path that comes with such greater results that it makes that difficult path worth it. It is so much easier just to have a set of rules, isn't it? And to judge myself and others against a set of rules. That is the easy path. It's so much easier politically speaking, to just have one guy at the top that tells everybody what to do and what he says goes. That's a much easier path. It's so much easier to live under a dictator who doesn't allow me to make my own decisions but allows, but, but makes them for me. That's a much easier path. But it isn't easier because it's better. It's easier because it asks nothing of me. It's easier because in that system, I don't have the choices set before me, I don't, I'm not asked to give anything. I'm not asked to yield anything. I am simply asked to align. In the same way, anarchy is a much easier path. Everybody just do what you want. It's easier. But though it's easier, it's not better. Because within that system... I'm trampled over as soon as somebody comes that's stronger than I am. Liberty is not this way. Liberty asks something of us. Liberty demands responsibility. Liberty requires sacrifices. Liberty adds risk. But its promises are so superior, the results that it promises are so superior that those who are willing to accept the responsibility and assume the risks 
also qualify themselves for rewards that no man under bondage could ever know. And that's what we're talking about in the remaining part of our time together today. The challenges, the risks, the narrow way is that way of spiritual liberty. Liberty is not the natural human path in any context. Whether we talk about the condition of our nation today or the condition of our souls, believer and unbeliever alike, lazy, selfish, entitled people are never going to naturally want or choose liberty because liberty is hard work. Liberty requires sacrifice. Liberty is about others, not self. Say, well, pastor, that's not how I understand liberty. Then you've been listening to libertarians. But liberty is very different. Liberty is not about you. It's not about yourself. Liberty is about sacrifice. And people must be educated to understand the value of liberty and encouraged to embrace the sacrifices necessary to obtain it. Not only in a nation, but also in a church and in your very heart. Are you willing to walk the narrow way? Are you willing to face the challenges that liberty presents? Let's talk about them together. There's three. Number one, liberty is the more difficult path. In Romans 7, Paul contrasts the oldness of the letter with the newness of the spirit. How much easier is it to live under a set of definitive rules than it is to live under self-governance? How much easier is it to be the child of one, uh, 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 a child who does what mom and dad says and is simply held accountable for obedience than it is to step into adulthood and to live under the weight of choosing what the rules will be? Knowing that to falter when you're a child simply means you've stepped out of obedience to your parents. But to falter as an adult might have put you on an entirely wrong path that you are going to really struggle to get off of. The consequences of faltering when you are setting the rules yourself are significantly greater than when somebody else has set them for you. The consequences of disobedience are much less than the consequences when I choose the wrong path. In church terms, we talk about this as the difference between a religion and a relationship. How much easier is it to live in a religious system that is simply a checklist? To walk down a list of definitive do's and don'ts that tell me in a direct and objective manner whether or not I am what I need to be. That I can wake up and I say I'm not feeling very good today and I can look at the checklist and I can say I did everything on the checklist, therefore I must be okay. How much easier is it to simply allow your pastor or your church to do the thinking for you so that your only accountability is to their perceptions and expectations of you to where you don't have to wonder whether or not God is happy with you as long as pastor is happy with you to where a child doesn't have to wonder whether or not he's in a, uh, uh, he, he, he is rightly related to his own choices. He just has to wonder whether or not mom and dad are happy, right? That's a much easier way to live. How much easier is this direct obedience compared to the dynamics of a true relationship with the living God? 
where I must maintain an actual relationship with God in Christ and by His Spirit, where I must spend time getting to know Him, spending time with Him. I cannot just coldly follow a set of rules and know that it is enough because without the direct empowerment of the Spirit of God in my life, I am personally incapable of bearing spiritual fruit. So that if I grieve the Spirit of God through selfishness or through sin, or if I quench the Spirit of God through error or through pride, I find myself fundamentally incapable of accomplishing the will of God in me because it is not I who does it, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus described this way of liberty in John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. How much easier would it be if I could just run down a checklist and say, well, I didn't say these words today and I didn't do these things today and I didn't, uh, and, I, and I went this place when I was supposed to go there and I did the things that I was supposed to do while I was there. So it doesn't matter what's in my heart. It doesn't matter uh, what my relationship is like with God. I'm good. How much easier is that than to say, you know what? I have to have a heart that is right before the Lord. I have to be abiding in him for without him, I can do nothing. Make no mistake, John 15, 5 is the more difficult path because it means I can't just phone in my spiritual life. I can't have a heart full of envy or pride or anger and then just go to church and read the words of the Bible and invoke some words in a prayer and expect God's blessing and power. It doesn't work that way. It would if we were in such a, a simple, cold religious system. But it doesn't work if I want liberty. If I want liberty, I have to be right with God. Because if I'm not keeping Christ's commands, then I'm not abiding in Christ. And if I'm not abiding, I cannot bring forth fruit. And if I cannot bring forth fruit, then I am spiritually impotent. I am spiritually incapable. We'll talk more about that tonight. That's basically the theme of 1 John. But do you see what I mean? This liberty that God has designed in and through Christ whereby I live in the newness of the spirit, not the oldness of the letter. This is not a liberty to sin. It is not a liberty to do things my own way. It is not a liberty from responsibility, nor is it a liberty from accountability. It is a liberty from shame and from guilt and from condemnation, a liberty from a conscience crippled by the reality of my own sinfulness, which ushers me into a context where I am called to walk with Christ by choice. And as I choose to live in this manner, as I choose to walk this narrow road, as I choose... Not, not just to live up to somebody's expectations as it, as it relates to the outside, but as I align my heart and submit my will to the very Spirit of God, then He works in me that which is good, and I am living free from guilt, free from shame, free from condemnation. I am also living in a manner that is right and righteous before the Lord, but that narrow way is a way where I submit my will in liberty. Apart from this personal responsibility, apart from the intentionality and purpose found in maintaining a strong, thriving relationship with God and Christ by faith, I will fall short of pleasing God, regardless of how religious I am. So grace is by no means a cop-out, Christian. Grace is not the path of least resistance, Grace is not there so that I can justify biblically doing the things that I want to do. Grace is not license and grace is not apathy. Grace calls each of us to be active participants in our own spiritual liberty. 
Grace compels us to dig deeper than the superficial externals of religious devotion and root ourselves in a loving, devoted, unhypocritical, unambiguous relationship with our Redeemer. I can't pretend because relationships don't work that way. And as any of you know who are engaged in this personal relationship with Christ, even on, a, even on an earthly level, those of you that are engaged in a personal relationship with a spouse, you know that it's built on love and honor and respect, that a relationship is much more challenging to build only upon obedience and consequences, isn't it? Try to build your home upon the cold, hard, do and don't do. You're going to find that in one sense it's easier because you can run down a checklist, but you know what it isn't? It isn't alive. A relationship is much more challenging when it's built upon love and honor and respect, but it comes with dramatically better fulfillment and satisfaction. And that is the promise of the Spirit, a life devoted to Christ, following in his way, not the easier path, but the blessed path. Doesn't allow me to simply run down a checklist, but it also means that as I abide and as I draw near to Christ in love and he draws near to me, his spirit empowers me and he teaches me and he leads me and he bears his fruit in me. And this is something only liberty can bring, the liberty of grace. So liberty is the more difficult path. Second, liberty is the more vigilant path. Not only does liberty require a persistent care, a deep intentionality, I can't just follow a checklist. I have to engage my heart and my will in the process of maintaining a relationship rather than just doing certain things. Liberty is also a more vigilant path. The standard for the life in Christ is not a list of do's and don'ts. The standard is Christ himself. One of the hallmarks of an objective legal system is that it's very easy to see who's in compliance and who is not. There's a speed limit on the road. That speed limit is 55 miles an hour. It's very easy to see who's in compliance and not. You bring out a radar gun. The radar gun either says 55 or it says something other than 55. If it says 55, you're in compliance. If it says something other than 55, you're not. Pretty straightforward. We compare someone or something, some action, some person to a legal standard. They fall short of that legal standard. They are guilty. This is why religious systems have such a tendency toward judgmentalism. Because the whole essence of a religious system is people judging one another regarding whether or not they're living up to the demands of the system. Well, things become more difficult when the standards by which we operate are not a set of external expectations, but rather the standard of a heart motivation. Because I cannot see your heart any more than you can see my heart. To this end, my relationship to my external actions in my life change. Take note, they do not become irrelevant. My relationship to my external actions do not become irrelevant. They take a different role. The things that I do cease to become the standard by which I judge myself. The things I do. And instead, the things that I do become a spiritual thermometer by which I gauge where my relationship is with Christ. 
So it's no longer the end-all be-all of my judgment. It is now simply the gauge of whether or not I am near or not near to Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45, A good tree bringeth, forth, bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart... His mouth speaketh. Jesus acknowledges here that our actions flow from our hearts. But let's take a moment to understand the nuances of what this means. Your actions, your action today, your action to come to church is an outflowing of something in your heart. Under the simplicity of a system, your very presence here might indicate compliance. You're here, therefore you're good, right? You're here, therefore you're right with God. You're here, therefore you're pleasing God. You're here, therefore all is well. Under, under the, the simplicity of a system, it's a simple thing. You show up, you're fine. But that's not true, is it? The outworking of your heart in some manner brought you here. But what is church attendance the outworking of for you? Is your presence here this morning an outworking of your love for God and a desire to be among God's people? Of your recognition of the need to be encouraged in the Lord and to feast on his word and to be among the corporate praising of God through song and, and the need to lift our hearts together in, in prayer unto the Lord and to bring our petitions before him? The need to hold one another accountable to the things of the word of God? Is that, is that what brought you here this morning? Or is what brought you here this morning the outworking of your desire to be seen? To be seen as godly among friends so that you can go up to your neighbors and, and they'd say, did you, did you see that on Sunday? Well, no, I was at church. Are you going to be in the 4th of July parade? No, I'm sorry, I'm at church. What is your motivation for being here? Is the outworking of your heart the desire for truths and fellowship and service, as we're talking about uh, in, in our Hebrew series, as we'll be talking about tonight in John, 1 John? Or is it an outworking of your desire to feel morally superior to the people around you, feeling, making yourself feel better at their expense? Both of these are just as possible outworkings of why you're here this morning. And the dangerous thing is, last week you may have come with that heart of desire to be among God's people. And this week it may have been driven by jealousy or judgmentalism or selfishness. And what this means is that liberty demands of us a greater vigilance, greater honesty with ourselves, a humility with our intentions, with our desires. The life of the believer is judged on God's terms, not man's terms. Externals are indicators. The fact that you're here this morning is probably a good sign. Even if you came with your heart not quite right with the Lord, maybe you came not because you wanted to judge others or because you wanted to just impress someone, but maybe you came though your heart was not right with the Lord because you know that this is where you need to be, even though you didn't want to be here this morning. 
This is where you need to be because this is the place where you are uplifted, you are encouraged. This may even be the place, and I know this is often the case uh, for me, where, where I will come with something on my heart that's not quite aligned, but God's people help me line that up pretty quickly. To where I will say, if I have any honesty in my heart, I don't want to be at church, but I'm going to go to church because I know that coming out of there, I am going to have been blessed. And that may not be the purest of motivations, but there is something in your heart that brought you here today. The life of the believer is judged on God's terms, however. Externals are indicators, not standards. Those externals allow us to do many things. The externals of a religious system or, or, or a system as a whole are, is not a bad thing in and of itself. It is a fine thing in its place. They allow us to help one another. They allow us to hold one another accountable. They help us protect one another. The fact that we meet on Sunday every week gives us a measure of consistency. We can plan around that. We can make sure we can be available for that. We can prioritize it. We can look forward to it. We can look back upon it. All of those things come because we have set a day in the week and we, we, we observe it religiously. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a fine thing. But at the end of the day, it doesn't come down to what you think or what I think, what your pastor thinks, what your parents think, what your spouse thinks. It comes down to what God thinks of us. It comes down to what is in our hearts. And for all of my ability to fool my pastor or my parents or my spouse, we're not fooling God. And this is the vigilance of liberty, the burden of liberty. Intentionality. I have to live on purpose. I have to live with integrity. I can play the game. I can pretend. But if I don't have integrity, I'm not doing myself any favors. If I'm going to receive the blessings that liberty afford, I have to do it. I have to carry that burden with me. Liberty is the more difficult path. Liberty is the more vigilant path. You have to be vigilant. You have to guard. You have to constantly be renewing yourself. Just because I had the right idea last week doesn't mean I have the right idea this week. I have to make sure that this week, when I face myself this morning, when I look in the mirror today and I say, what is my motivation going to be for the day? Why am I going to do what I'm going to do today? That today my motivation is going to be that I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and might. And maybe I'm struggling, and maybe I'm angry, and maybe I'm frustrated, and maybe I'm tired. And maybe I'm not going to always live up to all of those goals. Well, thank God grace covers those things. But I know that's where I'm supposed to be. And I have to check myself every single day. Renew myself every single day because I can't just step into a system and let the current of that system carry me to success. It doesn't work that way in the spiritual. That's not how liberty works. Liberty must be constantly refreshed. We have to be vigilant. This is the call of liberty. My wife and I are doing some house cleaning. And not just one of the, the, the simple ones, but a serious decluttering. And as we have considered this serious decluttering effort... Uh, we're very much looking forward to the results and have already seen the results, but what do we know? We know that this is not going to be the last time in the history of our house. This is not the once-for-all decluttering, is it? Because we're going to declutter and we're going to get rid of all this stuff and it's going to be great and I'm actually going to have room to be able to walk through my house and all that, and that's good. And then we're going to start collecting again. And... If we're wise, we will do a decluttering campaign once or twice a year. 
if we do what we've done this last decade, we won't. And then at the end of the decade, it's going to have to be a big, big, big one again. But if I can just keep it decluttered, if I can root through every once in a while and get rid of stuff that I don't need, if I can say, you know what, that's a great deal, but we're not going to clutter the house with it, so I'm not going to get that. I'm not going to grab that. If I can stay on top of it, then I can live in that constant liberty of declutteredness, right? Instead of having to renew it. But either way, at least let's do it. We need vigilance. Liberty is the more difficult path. Liberty is the more vigilant path. Finally, liberty is the more accountable path. Before we got into the, these three points this morning, I read to you Galatians 5, verse 13, which says this, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Paul tells us that the liberty we have in Christ from the letter of the law was not designed by God as a means for you to then be able to set your own rules. You were not delivered from the law so that you can set your own rules, so that you can walk and live in a manner consistent with your will or to act with impunity or disregard for others because, well, I'm free, which means I can do what I want, which means I'm going to walk all over you. That is not why God gave us liberty. To the contrary, Paul says that liberty is not designed to free us from accountability. Much to the contrary, my liberty in Christ is intended to empower me to serve others. And once again, the idea is this, that under a legal system, my only focus, and you can even see this as it relates to, let's contrast capitalism and Marxism for a moment. Under a totalitarian Marxist top-down idea, there is no innovation. There is no creativity. Why? Because the only thing that anyone can focus on is getting through the day. Because all they can focus on is not making the people at the top angry. Because all they can focus on is getting enough to not get the wrong person angry at him so that they suddenly disappear. But under a system of liberty, I am then free from the weights of those dangers and those concerns, which frees me up then to be creative, to think outside the box, to innovate. Also, because within a top-down system, no matter whether I innovate or not, no matter whether I'm creative or not, no matter whether I excel at my job or I just get the bare minimum done, I'm getting the same pay. I'm getting the same rewards. I'm not getting anything more. But under a system of liberty, if I invest more, if I work more, if I have the good idea, then all of those things redound to my furtherance and benefit. Right? And so we have these ideas and the idea of liberty is not the idea that I am free from accountability. It is not that it simply frees me up then to be absolutely selfish in every way, shape, and form. But I am actually freed. I am freed to turn my eyes off of myself, to turn my eyes off of fear, to turn my eyes off of guilt, to turn my eyes off of shame, to not have to wake up every day and just worry about this checklist that is in front of me. Instead, I don't need to worry about the checklist anymore. I worry about following the footsteps of Christ, and that allows me to turn and look outward rather than inward. Freed by love to serve one another. Rather than being stuck on myself, trying to perpetually live up to the standard of which others may think of me, or be bound by a set of rules which constrain me to live up to God, lest the lightning bolt come and strike me dead, I live in the outworkings of Christ's character, I bind myself to the principles of Christ's life, and I free my and, and Christ thus frees my spirit to look outward at others rather than inward at myself. 
frees my spirit to love the unbeliever rather than to judge the unbeliever because it's not my job to judge the unbeliever. God will do that. I can love him as Christ loves him. And it frees my spirit to submit to my authorities and integrity, not just to manipulate the system for my own gain, but to actually genuinely submit, as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says, as free, not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Peter is speaking here directly about how these Jewish readers are relating themselves to their authorities. And he says that because you are free, because you are free on the inside, because you live in the blessed liberty of the children, Children of God, you don't just have to clothe your malice in liberty. You don't use your liberty as a means by which to undermine people from one side or another, but you actually serve the Lord. You actually submit yourself. The principle best understood as it relates to the church then is through the weaker brethren principle. So we see this liberty as it relates to the unbeliever that I'm not going to judge them or hold things over them. We see it as it relates to our our authorities that we are going to actually genuinely submit to our authorities even if they're bad authorities because we are free as servants of God. We're not playing the game. We're not uh, doing things maliciously. We're not uh, um, uh, serving you with one hand while working against you with the other hand. We are at liberty to serve properly. And as it relates to one another, this liberty is often, is best understood. There's various ways for it to play out, and we'll talk about those um, as we continue through our Tuesday night series on judgment, and we're getting into the weaker brethren principle. But this weaker brethren principle is a great way to visualize the nature of what it means to walk in liberty among believers. Now, I am not going to take the time to speak in full of the idea today, but the idea that, uh, is that I live before God in liberty. Yet in consistency with the liberty that I have in Christ, my highest principle is that great commandment which Jesus gave us so many times, this is my commandment that ye love one another. So that in consistency with this highest goal that my liberty compels me unto, as I maintain a personal thriving relationship with Christ in love, I engage in or refuse to engage in certain actions based upon the needs of those whom I'm around. So that I say, yes, this is something I enjoy doing, but because I live in liberty, I'm not bound to it. And because someone else is grieved by it, I am free not to do it, that I might love my brother always acting in accordance with the command in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whether I eat or drink or whatsoever do I do, I do all to the glory of God. So, of course, our liberty never allows us to go outside of the character of Christ. And within this constraint of the character of Christ, I act in a manner which is most deferential and charitable toward my brother in Christ or toward the unbelievers in my midst or whoever it might be. Using the freedom I have in Christ to set aside my own goals, to set aside my own aspirations, my own desires to serve another. And this is liberty. So that we read in the New Testament, Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. That's liberty. Say, what do you mean? I'm binding myself to them. No, you are living in liberty. Verse 19, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and the things whereby, wherewith, excuse me, one may edify another. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Wow, that sounds really constraining, pastor, does it? 
Would you much rather be in a system where you don't even have time to think of anyone else because you're so busy worrying about whether you measure up? Or can I say, you know what, because I have been freed from that, freed to look at others, it is a small thing for me to live in the accountability and the vigilance and the responsibility of liberty and consider my brother above myself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You want to know what liberty is? Spiritual context, political context, this is where liberty is found. Liberty is a responsibility. It's a path of accountability. It's a freedom intended by God to compel service and love. A freedom which allows me to serve men in different times and in places in different ways in order to guide them into the love of Christ. It's not the easiest path. It's the opposite of the self-indulgent path. It's a path that will ask of you sacrifice and vigilance and accountability. As every context of liberty always has. Everyone who's walked that path of liberty has been asked for sacrifice, vigilance, and accountability. Don't be fooled by anyone telling you any different. Because the liberty, liberty as we know it, and liberty as it has played out historically in the political and in the cultural realm is little more than an application to what we know for, through the grace of Jesus Christ as liberty played out, plays out in the spirit realm. It's the same thing, just a different application. And as we close, let me say one more thing about liberty. If you're willing to walk that narrow road of liberty, an investment into liberty is always paid back 1,000-fold. The scriptures, as with history, juxtapose liberty and bondage. And while there's not a man in this church who would say that they prefer the yoke of bondage, yet some among us choose to live in it anyway. Not because it's the superior way, but because if we're honest, it's the easier way. It's the simple way. It's the more accessible way. And so you live in the bondage of your sin because living in liberty is more complicated. You kind of put yourself into cruise control and you judge yourself on some other standard other than Christ and that pacifies your conscience and you stay in that bondage, whether that's the bondage of license or whether that's the bondage of legalism. You stay in that bondage because the difficult, sacrificial, vigilant, accountable path of liberty is just one that you're not willing to walk down. And our country today, as we've said several times, serves as a wonderful illustration of this very idea. Liberty has been its creed from the beginning. But liberty takes work, sacrifice, vigilance, and accountability. People don't want to do the work. They don't want to make the sacrifice. They actually prefer bondage. Most, it would seem in our time, would prefer the comfort and ease of bondage to the sacrifices of liberty. But as the nation yields liberty, it is going to come at a very high cost. Where if the people of this nation had the moral fortitude and humility 
to per pursue that path of liberty once again, the benefits would be abundant. You know this, you see it. You see what is happening in our country as, it, it, even in the name of liberty, as people turn inward, as they reject the moral fabric that liberty demands, as they reject the accountability and the vigilance and the sacrifice that liberty asks them. You see what's happening? We all do. They say we're becoming more free. We're doing what we want. We're casting off the shackles. But what they're actually doing is placing themselves in the bondage of self and rejecting the liberty that has been their posterity. Let our nation and its history be a metaphor for us in our own spiritual lives. What the nation does, that's, that's a conversation for a different forum. I'm connecting those dots today, but I don't want you to walk away thinking about what needs to happen in this country. I want you to walk away thinking about where you are in your own heart. Not as it relates to politics, as it relates to the word of God. The liberty of Christ is not the easy path, Christian. Now, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but there's a yoke there. The easy path is a checklist Christianity with its, with its do's and don'ts. The easy path, path is a licentious Christianity with all of its allowances for sin and for selfishness. These are short-term paths. These are easy paths, but they come at the expense of the blessings of liberty. Choose the liberty that is in Christ. It will ask something of you. It will ask you to walk a more deliberate, a more careful, a more intentional path. It will ask you to every day renew yourself in your relationship with the true and living God. It will ask you to set yourself aside so that you may by love serve one another. It will ask you to take your eyes off of yourself and turn them onto others. It will ask these things of you. You won't be able to hide simply behind your religious actions anymore. It is not a life lived in your own power or for your own personal gain. These are not things of liberty, but oh, those sacrifices are not empty, nor are they in vain. The return on investment for walking the narrow road of liberty in this context of this life and more, most assuredly in the life that is to come, those consequences are dramatic and positive and wonderful, and worth it. Following the way of Christ into liberty is worth the cost every time. And on this Independence Day, as we live in a decadent nation which has lost its will to defend any sort of liberty, they redefine it so that they might defend it on their own terms, but certainly will not walk in the liberty as the Word of God defines it. As we see the blessings of a free nation slip from under the, uh, away from us under the doctrines of the bondage to sin and to selfishness. Let that be a visible reminder for us as individuals, as, a family, as, as families, and as a church that it could happen here too. And let it stir within our hearts a determination that we as believers will stand fast in the spiritual liberties wherewith Christ hath made us free. We will not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. These spiritual liberties which Christ purchased for us on the cross, they were pricey. And which will ask of us sacrifice and vigilance and accountability. But which comes with a 1,000 fold return. If only we will accept it live in it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.